The following is a presentation of the Open Door Bible Baptist Church and Pastor Chris Tice. For more audio and video content, please check us out on the web at www.opendoornj.org. So for four years, things are peaceful in Shushan, Esther's queen. She's reigned as queen. Met Mordecai's tended the king's business at the gate. He's doing his job. And then everything changed. And all the Jews in the empire found themselves in danger here of being killed just to satisfy the hatred of a man named Haman. The book of Esther is one of five Old Testament books that the Jews call the writings or the five megaloth. The word megaloth means scrolls in Hebrew. And the other books are Ruth, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon, and Lamentations. And each year... Uh, on the Feast of Purim, if you know anything about Jewish tradition, the book of Esther is read publicly in the synagogue to all the people. And whenever the reader mentions Haman's name, everybody in the congregation stamps their feet and they say this, may his name be blotted out. May his name be blotted out. To Jews everywhere, Haman personifies everybody who has tried to exterminate the people of Israel. And this chapter explains to us why Haman was such a dangerous man, but I believe that it also reveals to us something in all of us, and that is our own depravity. Our own ability to do things that dishonor God, uh, to honor ourselves, to lift ourselves up in positions that uh, we're not worthy of. Uh, Since the fall of man, we understand that mankind has always uh, honored himself and lifted himself in a position of being like God and wanting to be like God in many ways. Even accepting and receiving worship, that's something that we learn from our enemy Satan. But how many times uh, have the Jews seen different people uh, raised up in different ages across many different years, tried to exterminate them as a people? We know this is part of the devil's plan to attack the Jewish people, but not just the Jewish people, but to annihilate or to destroy God's plan for a Redeemer to come through the Jews. God promised that through the seed uh, of, uh, of the Jews, that the Messiah would come, and that Messiah would be a Savior for all the people of all the world. And the devil has tried to again and again. We see all the way up to Jesus' birth, even Herod trying to kill you know, the firstborn, all those that were born there in Bethlehem. We, we see in Egypt, Pharaoh doing much of the same. As we look at more modern history and European history, we, we understand men like Hitler, and others uh, were raised up and tried to annihilate, exterminate the Jews. Uh, so the Jews have always been objects of uh, violence, objects of persecution. They have always been attacked for, for many different reasons uh, that people say is the reason for. But I think that we can see this as, as they celebrate their own feasts in Purim. They understand that uh, they had some real enemies. And these enemies were, were hate, hateful towards them and wanted to destroy them, did Uh, horrible things, and they celebrate this feast every year to celebrate God's providence, to celebrate God's protection, to celebrate the fact that God keeps His promises. And I think that's something that we should all acknowledge today. How many are glad for God's protection in your life? I think that's something to be celebrated. Sometimes we don't celebrate that enough. You know that, uh, but by the grace of God, we wouldn't be here. Many things could have happened to us this week, Many things could have happened to us in our life. If I sat with you long enough, I'm sure you could tell me some stories of things that have happened in your life that would explain why you shouldn't be here today. But how many are thankful that God is faithful and God has protected you and God has brought you to today, God has brought you to today, not by chance or not by luck or not by destiny or not by karma, but by His grace and for His purposes. And God has a plan for your life And all of us need to see that because if we don't, we'll go through wandering through life purposelessly, thinking that there's no reason for us to be here or that it's all luck and chance and and that we have a God that's kind of just rolling the dice. We see that here in our chapter, don't we? In verse number 7 is Haman and the rest of them are casting lots. They're rolling the dice, kind of determining what day is going to be their lucky day. And on their lucky day to decide that that's going to be the day that they exterminate all the Jews in the land. That's going to be a great day, a lucky day. He pitches that even to uh, King Xerxes. He says, if you want luck to shine upon you, if you want providence to be upon you, if you want your kingdom to be blessed on this day of luck, you need to annihilate all your enemies. And here's some enemies right here in your kingdom that need to be taken out first and foremost. And then 
luck will shine upon you and you'll have success in your life. You say, that's preposterous. But how many people are living their lives in much of the same illogical way, in much of the same foolishness, in darkness, thinking that some lucky day is going to shine upon them, goodness or luck or some chance is going to happen. Everybody's playing their luck today. They're all waiting for something to happen to them, and they're waiting for their time to come. And a lot of us, we understand that even as Christians, we believe in God's providence and God's protection and God keeping His promises, but sometimes Christians live very karmic lives. They live very uh, kind of chance lives. They don't live like they believe in God's protection and providence. They live more like they believe, believe in chance. But I want to point out two things in our chapter and maybe some things that we can learn from them. And number one today, if you're following along in the worship guide, is the obvious depravity of man. The obvious uh, depravity of man. As we look at the chapter, I don't think it's hard for us to see how wicked men can be. How hurtful, how harmful, how destructive people can be when they're left to their own devices, when they're left to themselves. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. But as we continue to live our lives without acknowledging God, how much foolishness, destruction, depravity uh, follows that. If we read Romans chapter 1, the Bible says, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were they thankful. God was revealing himself. And how many know that God has revealed himself to us in general revelation? He's done so through nature. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth his handiwork. You can look outside and you can look at design. You can look at anatomy. You can look at uh, all the things that are around us. And you can look at these things and understand there is some designer, some higher power, something that enacted all of these things that we see about, uh, around us. How many have ever stood and watched a sunset and in awe of that sunset said, oh, this must have happened by accident? There must be some designer There must be some awesome God that's out there. Have you ever stared off and looked at the stars? Our universe, which is unsearchable, uh, which we haven't even been beyond, if you would, just even just outside of our own atmosphere and planet. I mean, we just haven't gone very far, have we? But what a huge, expansive universe that God has made that's held. And and how many know just a couple degrees one way or another, and we burn up or or we freeze? Uh, earth is uninhabitable. We understand all of those things, but how how can all of that just be on accident? And we understand that God has revealed himself to us. He's also revealed himself to us in our own conscience. You know, people don't, uh, they don't naturally just disbelieve in a God. They have to be taught that. They have to be educated about that. When you go to places where people have no education, they are worshiping something. They have some uh, form of worship going on. They're worshiping rocks or trees or the sun or the moon or the stars. They're worshiping their ancestors. They're worshiping spirits. They're worshiping, but they're worshiping, right? Because there's some kind of hole inside of them that says there must be a higher power. There must be some power at work around us. None of this could be without some higher power. Even those that call themselves, you know, science uh, believers, uh, people that just, you know, they believe everything can be explained through science, and science is really their God. I mean, even Stephen Hawking himself would say that there's a part of what he believes that is called the God particle. And he says, I can't even explain this part. I don't know how this happened. And, and when you get down to it, what they believe really is about faith. It comes down to faith. It comes down to them believing that this came to be in this way, even though it cannot be proven, it cannot be shown in some way. So God has revealed himself to us through nature and through conscience. How about history? As we look at the history of mankind, we can look and study history and we see God at work. We see God in actions. We see God doing things. And that's why I think the Bible can rightly say, the fool said in his heart, there is no God because you have to deny nature. You have to deny your conscience. You have to deny history in order for you to come to the conclusion that there's no God. And some people do that and that's fine. It's their choice. They can reject God. But what God tells us what follows those that reject God, is they believe that they can rise up to the level of being God themselves in control of everything in their lives. But let me ask you this question. What happens when everything in your life spins out of control? You don't have control of the things that you think you have control of. Who do you turn to in those moments? When you can't do anything, who do you look to? I mean, is it really that just everything is random? 
that everything happens the way that it happens. It's all just a random thing. It's, it's without purpose in our lives. What a, what a horrible way to live our lives. What a desperate way to live our lives. What a depraved way to live our lives. But we see in even our text through Haman the obvious depravity of man. We can see that, uh, number one, here in Haman's promotion. In Haman's promotion. How could Xerxes get any worse, really? Are you with me on this? As you continue to progress through Esther, I, I think in my, my mind, how could this king get any worse? How could this king get any more foolish uh, than who he actually is? Haman gets promoted. Who's the one that protected Xerxes? Who's the one that uncovered the plot? Who is the one that showed loyalty and devotion to him and who stretched his own neck out uh, to let the king know that there was a plot against him, which was uncovered, which protected him, and, you know, all of a sudden, now what we see, after these things come to pass, you know, chapter 3 says, after these things, King Xerxes just decides he's going to promote Haman. Haman's a great guy, isn't he? As we read more about Haman, uh, Haman is, is a horrible guy. Uh, Haman's a guy that's the opposite of Mordecai. He has no character. He has no devotion other than to himself. And this is Haman. But how many have in your life seen these kind of things happen. Have you ever had something unfair happen to you? Maybe it's at work in a promotion. Somebody else gets the promotion. Somebody else gets the position. Somebody else gets the praise. Somebody else gets the credit. And you have learned, just like I have learned, how many have learned that life is just not fair? Mordecai is seeing that again and again, but we're seeing the depravity in even Haman's promotion that he chooses Mordecai, or he chooses Haman instead of Mordecai for a position of promotion. How do, you th- how do you think about the position you currently hold in life? You think it's a matter of chance? You think it's a matter of your own doing? Uh, isn't this true that man tends to take credit for his promotions and blame God for his problems? Man tends to take credit for his promotions and blame God for his problems. In other words, if I'm in a position where I'm doing good, that's because I've done that myself, because I've worked really hard or because I've tried really hard and I've done all these things. Look what I did. And then we have problems that come in our lives and we say, God, why did you do? So we take credit for all the promotions in our life and we blame God for all the problems in our life. Is that you today? Is that how you look at life? It surely seems to be how Haman uh, looked at his life. He thought that he was in that position because he was good. How many of the psalmists sometimes look at the world and you're perplexed as evil people prevail and have victory and have money and have prosperity and it seemed to be blessed and good people struggle and suffer and go through so much difficulty? How many, like me, sometimes this question comes out in the world that we live in, if God is so good, why does bad stuff happen to good people? I mean, isn't that the question that we hear so much? If God is so good, how can he let this happen? Uh, we have to be reminded that God is a God that is a work. He's an eternal God. He sees the end from the beginning. We just see these moment by moment. In the life of the heroes uh, of the faith, if we were to see them in snapshots or in real time as they were living their lives, we would scratch our heads. Why is God allowing this to happen? You look at the life of Joseph, and you look at how that he loved God and honored God, and then what is he? He's, he's thrown into a pit. He's betrayed by his own brothers. He's sold into slavery. He goes into Potiphar's house as a slave. He excels there. He's falsely accused because he's desired by Potiphar's wife. He even, in his own integrity, leaves his coat and keeps his character, right? She grabs onto his coat. He leaves it behind. The thing that he loves, he leaves behind because he wants to have character more than he wants to have the things that he has. We see that all at work and through the life of Joseph, and then he's thrust into prison, wrongly accused. And then when he's good in the prison and, and he's get raised to a position uh, of a promotion there within the prison, what happens to him in his life? Well, he helps two people that are there. Well, he probably helps one and he discourages the other one by d- interpreting a dream for them and the one that he helps and, and what comes to pass in his life, he forgets about him and he leaves him there. It's like, can Joseph catch a break? I mean, all the things that have happened to him thus far, you'd think, where is God in all of this? How could God be loving Joseph while Joseph was in the pit? How could God be loving Joseph when Joseph was in Potiphar's house? How could God be loving Joseph when Joseph was in the prison? And then we see Joseph goes to the palace, and it's almost like we think, well, finally, Joseph, he finally got himself into that position. 
Now, that was God's plan all along, wasn't it? That was God's plan all along. But Joseph had to go through those steps to get there. Joseph would have never gotten to the palace from his father Jacob's house. He had to go through those steps. You know, God is bringing you along to a place. God's thoughts of you are thoughts of peace to bring you, the Bible says, to a purposeful, expectful end. God loves you. God has a plan for you. And sometimes we're just seeing God's plan for our life in these snapshots in life, and we don't see God at work. And thankfully, even though God is allowing this to happen and Haman to be promoted and Mordecai not to be promoted, to be overlooked in this promotion, we understand when we know the whole story that this had to happen, that this was part of God's plan for him to be promoted. So in that promotion, they could see how horrible this guy was and he could be removed, his plot could be uncovered, and the people of God could eventually be protected. God was showing his mighty hand even through this depraved man. God can be seen in Haman's, uh, uh, the obvious depravity of man rather, can be seen in Haman's promotion. It can be seen in Haman's pride. Here's a perfect example of someone letting their promotion go to their head, right? What does Haman do as soon as he's promoted? Well, he enacts this decree with the king's authority that when he comes around and he's riding in on his horse that everybody needs to get on their face and bow down to him like he's the king. He's already put himself in a position. We can see how dangerous Haman is. I mean, he wants to be the king. He's not the king, but he's doing anything he can to have the king's power, including later on duping the king, taking his ring, getting his money, getting his authority. And Xerxes is just kind of giving it up, giving it up to this guy who has all these plans. And his plans, he thinks, are going to come to pass. He thinks he's getting his own way. And how prideful he is. Can I remind you that these six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven are abomination unto him. The first one on the list is a proud look. A proud look. God hates pride. How many know that many of our outward sins are rooted in our inward pride? A lot of times what we do with our sins, don't we, is we tend to pluck the fruit of our sin off the tree in confession without ever taking the axe to the root of our sin in repentance. How many know that a lot of the outward sins that you and I struggle with are really not the bigger problem, but really there's a deeper problem in our heart, and that deeper problem is pride. And how many know you can pull the fruit of pride off the tree, but another fruit will grow behind it? And a lot of us, that's how we live our lives, is we have all these problems in our lives, and instead of going to the deeper root of our sinfulness, we just keep plucking the fruit off of our lives, trying to remove them. Why? Because we don't want people to see it, dangling from our tree, our our life. We don't want people to see the outworkings of pride. How many know that the outworkings of pride are ugly even to mankind, even to lost people? Pride is an ugly thing. It's not something that, um, that people enjoy seeing. And the fruit of pride is very ugly. It doesn't taste good. And we can see the fruit of pride being seen in Haman's life. And a lot of times, again, what we're doing is in our own lives is we see pride rearing its ugly head in different ways in our lives. And we just want to get rid of and cover up and and eliminate those things that cause us to look bad when really God sees the pride in our hearts and it needs to be rooted out. How many uh, need to this morning really ask God as we read Pastor Justin read from Psalm 139, the psalmist articulated this way, Search me, O God, and know my thoughts. Try me and know my ways, and see if there be any wicked way in me. How many of there's a part of your life right now that you don't want God to search? You don't want God to see. But how many are reminded like I am that the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good? You cannot hide from God. You can't hide your motives from God. You can't hide your methods from God. You can't hide the ends don't justify the means with God. You say, well, I'm trying to do a good thing, even if I'm doing it in the wrong way. God knows our motives. He knows our thoughts. He knows our intentions. The Word of God is quick and powerful. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces and divides the soul and the spirit and the joint and the marrow. It is a discerner, the Bible says, of what? The thoughts in the intentions of our heart. How many know that sometimes the evil that we're dealing with, the sin that we're dealing with in our own lives, may not be our actions, but it may be our intentions. How we're trying to get to where we're going. We have selfish motives, selfish intentions. God tells us how He wants us to serve Him. 
But how many struggle with your flesh in this? Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as servants of the Lord that do the will of God from the heart. How many struggle with your flesh because your flesh wants to do things with eye service as men pleasers? In other words, to be seen of men, to, to get the praise, to get the credit, so that people can you know, see what you're doing. And we see that sometimes in our lives, and boy, it's just all pride. Pride causes me, listen, it's masked in even weak things like anxiety and fear. Sometimes we think, well, that's you know, a good thing in, in my life that I'm you know, a cautious person or I'm a person or I'm an anxious person, or, you know, I struggle in some way in my life, and, you know, I, I, I suffer from depression, I suffer from this, I suffer from, from that. Listen, some things you need medication for, and some things you need confession and repentance for, from. You know, if you're suffering with something that's a mental illness, then see a doctor and get medication. But what I'm saying to you uh, this morning when it comes to uh, anxiety, fear, uh, these things are part of pride in our lives. They're, they're us thinking that we're in control of things, And we get anxious when we're not in control of things. And we're not trusting God in areas of our life because we're prideful and thinking that our decisions and the things that we do, we can control every little thing in our lives. How many found out that you're not in control? You're not in control. By the way, that's a good revelation that God gives to us. I'm glad that when God reminds me as a husband or as a father, as a pastor, that I am not in control. How many like me like to be in control? When you're in the car, do you like to drive? I mean, we want to be in control of every situation all the time. It doesn't matter how much you're trying. I don't care if you're a business owner this morning. I don't care if you're in a position where you're over, uh, in leadership over many different people. You're not in control. Promotion comes from the north. We just read it doesn't come from the east or the west or from the south. It comes from the north. God sets people up and he takes them down. And he does it for his own purposes. How many know that God holds the hand of the king, the heart of the king in his hands and he turns it whithersoever he will? Some people are in distress today because they don't like what they see in government. They don't like what they see in politics. and They don't like what they see all around us. And they're pulling their hair out while they watch the news. Can I tell you that God is on the throne and he's in control. And if he puts somebody in a position, he can take them out. And God has raised people up and set people up for certain positions and purposes and times. And may we just trust him that God is in control. That God can take care of his people. That God can take care of those that are uh, forgotten. And that God wants to raise up his church to be his hands and feet and in his compassionate heart in the world that we live in. We can see it in Haman's promotion. We can see it in Haman's pride. Man's desire to be like God and to be worshipped like God goes all the way back to the fall. We can see it in Haman's plot. We can see it in Haman's plot. Haman doesn't just desire to kill Mordecai. Listen, this goes from rage at an individual to racism across the board to a people. By the way, if you know anything about what the Bible describes here when it comes to Haman, is that Haman's line and Haman's people go all the way back to that war between the flesh and the Spirit of God, between Jacob and Esau, in that Agagite, those people who Saul, by the way, who was supposed to eliminate when he was king and failed to do so. And by the way, it was the Agagites that had killed him, that he lost his own life because he disobeyed God in in destroying the enemies of God. And from this long line of enemies of God, all of a sudden, here comes Haman. See, God knows way back when who's going to be born down here and says, hey, listen, take care of it now. It's a problem. Remember when the Jews went into the land, he said, hey, listen, don't make deals with them. Don't compromise with them. Hey, listen, you've got to go in. You've got to conquest. You've got to drive out the people from the land because if you let them stay, you're going to have problems down the road. And they didn't listen to him. They cried peace, peace when there was no peace. How many know that you cannot make compromises with Satan? You can't make compromises with Satan. A lot of people, they try to do that. Say, oh, can we just have peace? You can't make compromises with Satan. The Bible says, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. But through flesh and blood and through these struggles in the Old Testament, we see really behind all of these struggles, there's an enemy, Satan, who hates God and who hates God's people, and you cannot make compromises with the devil. And you can't join up with him even if you think that your purpose is aligned for a period of time. 
How many of those sometimes that's how villains act? When their purposes are aligned for themselves, they make deals with people. Listen, you can't make deals with the devil. The devil is a deceiver. The devil has been a deceiver from the beginning of time. And don't you think for a moment that he's some kind of, even though he's subtle, even though he's sneaky, even though he may seem, as the Bible says, he disguises himself like an angel of light to do good. Some of us, listen, in our lives, we made the wrong decision of making a deal with the devil somewhere in our lives. You cannot make a deal with the devil, and you cannot, listen, when it comes to the things of God and the things of this world, God says, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. Why? Because God knows you can't make deals with those things. You can't allow those things. Jesus said it this way, hey, church, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. I say, well, it's only just a little sin. The Bible tells us in principle that it's the little foxes that destroy the vines. It's just the little things in our life. How many have had big problems in your life because you left little things to themselves? You didn't take care of the little things. If you work in carpentry or you work in some kind of uh, construction or maintenance, you understand it's the little things that drive the big things. It's the little things that hold the big things. When you don't do the details right, you end up with big problems down the road. By the way, that's the same in all of our lives, isn't it? With everything that we do. God is concerned, hey, listen, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. And how many know with little things God can do much? I like what the songwriter said, little is much when God is in it. Don't, don't think that the little things are unimportant. The little things are important to God because it's through little that God does much. I'm glad that the little boy with the five loaves and two fishes thought, hey, my lunch is too little for Jesus to use. There's nothing that's too little in your life that God can't use if you'll give it to him. Some of us who say, I don't have much to offer God. God doesn't need much from you. He just needs your heart. He just wants you. He just wants your heart. He just wants your devotion. He say, I say, well, I don't have much to offer. I, I'm a bit of a mess. You don't understand my history and the sins and the, the lifestyle and the background and the things that I've done. You don't know who I am. Listen, God knows who you are, exactly who you are, and he loves you. And he can use anything. He can use anyone. And if he can use uh, people in a situation like this, listen, I don't care what your situation this is, is this morning. God is bigger than your situation, and God is bigger than your problems, and God is bigger than the, the, the things that are in this world, and God is much bigger than our enemy, Satan, who wants us to think that he's so big. But he's so little. And can I say this this morning? He's a defeated enemy as far as God is concerned. And we're not to give place to him in our lives. How many... No, when you give the devil place in your life, he takes every place. Sometimes we're busy giving the devil little places of our lives, and we're trying to give God little places of our lives, and then we're trying to keep the other parts of our lives for ourselves. We compartmentalize even our spirituality. Well, Sunday's for God, and this is for God, and then this is for me, and this is, I need to do my own self. I need to live my own life. I need to make myself happy. How many find that through life you're never satisfied in doing for yourself? But there's no greater joy than serving the Lord. There's no greater joy than following after the Lord. The obvious depravity of man can be seen in Haman's promotion, can be seen in Haman's pride, it can be seen in Haman's plot. He has systematically, the devil has systematically targeted the people of God because he desires to eradicate everyone who follows after God. But number two, we can see the hidden grace of God. The hidden grace of God. How many know that sometimes God's grace is obscured because of the greatness of the problems around us? We may not see God's grace at work. How many know where sin is abounded in your life, grace does much more abound? Let God's grace abound in your life. Let it be at the forefront of your life. Even if you can't see it, understand that God's grace is abounding to you today. I like how Paul articulated in Romans 1. He said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then he says this in verse 17, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. You know how grace is revealed in your life? Faith. That's how we see God's grace. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. 
Listen, some of us, we say, well, I, I can't see God's grace at work in my life. Hey, listen, have faith to believe that what God says is true, that God's grace is at work, whether you can see it or sense it or feel it or know it. God's grace is at work in your life. And what is God's grace, by the way? It's unmerited favor. It's God doing things for us that we don't deserve. It's the supernatural enabling in the life of a Christian to do God's will. You know, apart from God's grace, you and I can't do good. Are you with me? Apart from God's grace, you and I cannot do good. That's the problem is many of us have a higher view of ourselves than we should and a lower view of God than we should. We think that we're capable of goodness. But here's the truth. Mankind is not capable of goodness. And, and as you hear people say that, I've heard interview after interview after interview of people who have either ended their life or people who are living a life of destruction and despair say that I believe that people in the world are mostly good. If you study history, that doesn't hold up. People are not mostly good. People are all bad. The Bible puts it this way, people are all sinners. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Listen, I'm not asking you to judge people on the basis of our standard. I'm asking you to judge people on the basis of God's standard. How do people compare when compared to God? You say, well, nobody compares to that. Nobody can hold up to that. Exactly. So why are these religions allowed to stand? Because people believe and have faith that if they're good enough, God will accept them. How good do you have to be for God to accept you? How much good do you have to do? And how long do you have to do it for, for God to accept you? You say, well, surely good people get to go to heaven and bad people have to go to hell. That's not the basis for how God judges. God says all humanity and all of mankind has altogether become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. We've all together gone out of the way. We are all off the path. You say, well, I'm closer to it than some others. You're still off the path. You still don't make it. The Bible uses this terminology. It says you fall short. In other words, you miss the mark. How many know whether you missed it by this much or you missed it by this much, you still missed it? Okay? Some people are arguing about how much they're missing it by. Well, I'm better in some way. You still missed. You still don't make it. It doesn't matter how hard you try. It doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how, how many uh, behaviors you change in your life you still end up missing the mark. You say, well, that doesn't make any sense. That's not how we judge things, but it is how God judges things because he's a holy, righteous, perfect God. He's sinless. He says, hey, listen, if you've, if you've done wrong, uh, a judge that's just doesn't stand before uh, one who's been convicted of a crime and says, well, listen, you lived a really good life, and because you've lived a really good life up to this point in time, just because you murdered somebody now doesn't, uh, you know, I'm just going to, you know, the good outweighs the bad, right? You've done a lot of good, and so now you, you've done this one thing that's bad. No, no, you, if you have a sin in your life, you fall short. And you have to be judged for it. And consequences have to be paid for it. How many know that consequences are unfortunate, but they cannot be avoided? They're unfortunate, but they cannot be avoided. Can I say this uh, to Christians here today? Just because you may be suffering from the consequences of your sin doesn't mean you haven't been forgiven by God. Sometimes we get that messed up, don't we? We think that forgiveness means no more consequences in life. Listen, if you sow, you're going to reap what you sow. That's what the Bible says. God's not mocked. And, And a Christian should never go through life saying, well, I'm forgiven so I can live how I want. Paul says, God forbid. We that are dead to sin should not live any longer therein. Let not sin reign or control or rule in your body. Why? Because you're bought with a price. You've been purchased by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are loved eternally and unconditionally by God. And you are undeserving of God's love. That's God's grace. What's your response to that? Well, Paul says reasonable response is this. Present yourself before God, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable. It's just reasonable for us to do that. God has eternally and abundantly saved us and given us the gift of God, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What is our response? Titus 2 says, The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. In other words, sometimes God's grace can't be seen, but it has appeared. God's grace in this story can be seen in Mordecai's dedication. 
What is driving Mordecai to continue doing his job when he's overlooked for a promotion? Notice Mordecai is still working. He's still serving at the king's gate, whereas he had done before, even though his act of bravery was forgotten and he was overlooked for a promotion. If you know the story, the king remembers what Mordecai did later on when that raises not just Mordecai to a level of promotion, but that enacts the salvation of all the people. So God even causes Xerxes not to remember at a certain time and to remember later when the reward will be greater, when the payoff will be greater. How many of us sometimes what we want is we want the reward only for us? Mordecai, when he is observed later for this great act that he did for the king, it doesn't just raise him to the level of Haman's position. It keeps the people from being destroyed by the king and from Haman's plot. What does it do? Well, it doesn't just save him. It saves everyone. That's what God's grace is about. See, some of us may not be looking for God's grace, but we may be looking for our own promotions. And that's sometimes where we're disturbed because we don't see that God is using our life to bring him glory. If you're living the Christian life only so that you can get glory from it, then you're going to be disturbed and disappointed in how God does things because God doesn't do things like people do things. God doesn't make decisions and God doesn't do things in his timeline like we would do things. How many of you were God, there would be very few people on the, world, on the earth today? And you might be the only one. You know, some of us, if we were God, how many of us have ever put ourselves in that position when we question God? God, why am I in this situation? If I was God, I wouldn't put me here. If I was God, I wouldn't make this choice. I wouldn't make this decision. How many know, just like a kid throwing a temper tantrum at his parent, sometimes that's what we are. We are obscured view of what is the overall picture of the greater good of what can happen from our lives if we'll just take our eyes off ourselves and put them on God. Notice we can see the grace of God in Mordecai's dedication. Mordecai keeps doing what he was doing before, even though he didn't get promoted. Sometimes Christians quit when they don't get observed, when they don't get, when they don't get the praise. I've seen people do that. They come into church, and what they're looking for, really, is to climb the ladder like they do in the corporate world. I'm just here to get a position. I'm just here to get a title. I'm just here, and I want to be observed. I want, I want, a position. I want to be in a position where people see how awesome I am and where my talents are uh, uh, pushed to the forefront. Listen, you're going to be really, really disappointed if that's the only reason why you're here. Listen, are we coming together because we want God's glory? God puts people in positions. God raises people to levels of positions. Don't ever think that you want to walk in. By the way, sometimes we look at other people within the church and we say, well, if I had everything they had and my life was this, and I had that marriage and I had that family and I had that house and I had that, then I would be living like they, are, they do too. We don't know what other... How many, how many know everybody in this room, myself included, we're all struggling. We got problems. I got problems just like you do. I got bills just like you do. I have issues just like uh, you do. We, we go through difficulties and we think sometimes our difficulties are so much greater than everybody else's in the room and we're comparing ourselves thinking I'm the only one or nobody cares or I've got to get attention to myself. If, if people could just understand the difficulty and how I go through life, you don't understand. Everybody in this room is bearing some kind of heavy burden today and the purpose for us coming together is saying despite our burdens, despite our problems, we serve a great God who is gracious and merciful and he's worthy to be praised and let's focus on him today and not me. I mean, no, that's what we needed to do today. We need to focus on him today. You don't need to focus on me, and I don't need to focus on you. I hope that we consider each other. I hope we provoke one another to love and good works. But the only person that deserves applause today is Jesus Christ. It's definitely not me. I made a lot of mistakes this week. How about you? I thought things I shouldn't have thought this week. How about you? I said things I shouldn't have said this week. How about you? There's some things that we've done and only God knows about. How many of us, all of us, would be embarrassed if our life, as it is, was shown to people no matter how well we've polished out the outside? We didn't come in here to be each other's judge. God's the judge. He knows our hearts. He knows our motives. And Mordecai just says, if God chose for me to be in this position at this time, 
that I'm just going to keep doing what I was meant to do because God hasn't moved me from this place yet. How many know that one of the greatest decisions you can make is just stay where you are until God moves you? Stay where you are until God moves you. When God moves you, you'll know. I've heard so many people say this. Well, I think this is what God wants me to do. And what they're saying is in contradiction with the Word of God. I'm saying, hey, listen, God doesn't lead people to do things that are against His Word. God doesn't lead people to, to, to act and to live in ways that are contrary to the Word of God. You say, oh, I have a good feeling about it. We always have a good feeling about doing things we want to do until they work out wrong. That we have a bad feeling about them. But how many know it's not a good thing to go through life on the basis of how you feel about things? How many of your heart has deceived you? Mine has. Sometimes we fall in love with the wrong things, the wrong people, the wrong places. Because we're in love with ourselves, and it's easy to deceive a person who's in love with themselves. Because as soon as somebody else shows love, or as soon as somebody else shows, and then we fall in love, because really what we love is for people to do good to us and acknowledge us, and we're just in love with ourselves. Listen, when you're in love with God, you want to be where God is glorified, where God is praised. It can be seen in Mordecai's dedication. The hidden grace of God can be seen in Mordecai's devotion. Mordecai's devotion. Mordecai only worshipped one God. Jehovah. He was fully devoted to God. And he was not going to bow to Haman. Some some of us may look at this and say, well, I'm glad for, like, stand up and cheer for Mordecai because I wouldn't have bowed to, to Haman either. Haman was a horrible guy. Mordecai was not bowing, not bowing to Haman because he was trying to be vindictive. Mordecai stood. Mordecai showed respect towards. Mordecai nodded to. Mordecai acknowledged the authority of. But Mordecai said, I'm not worshiping anyone or anything other than God. This is what he got upset about. Remember Haman said, hey, there's a group of people that are in our country that won't observe your laws. What was he pointing to? Well, it was a law. Haman made it a law to worship him. How many other kings had done this before? Remember when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego heard the songs and the music? And that music, it was a law that was decreed that whenever they heard that music, that they were supposed to bow before that image of Nebuchadnezzar that was set up in the land. And when everybody else got on their knees, Shadrach and Meshach stood. How many know that's when they stood out? They stood out not when they did what everybody else was doing, but when they didn't do what everyone else was doing. Isn't it interesting that in the world you're unique when you do what everyone else is doing? No, you're unique when you do what God wants you to do because there's not a lot of people doing that. It takes character and the grace of God to stand when everybody else is bowing. Listen, everybody's bowing to the things of this world. Everybody's marching to the beat of its music. Everybody is marching to, listen, they're going with the flow, they're going with the stream, and I understand what's being preached in our world today, listen, is in contrary to what the Word of God teaches us, and it's hard for Christians to stand. And that's why God says, stand therefore. Putting that armor of God on. You know why a lot of Christians aren't standing today for the right things? Because they're too busy fighting amongst themselves. There's so many Christians that are shooting at other believers and other Christians instead of standing for the things of God. This world needs to see believers once again who will stand for God, even if it costs them something. Remember their, their uh, testimony to the king? They said, oh, great king. They honored him. They showed respect to his position. Listen, we cannot bow and we will not bow to any other God but the one true and living God. And we believe that our God can rescue us from the burning fiery furnace and the consequences of us doing this. But they said this, I like this. But if he doesn't, we still won't bow. If we have to face the fire, we'll still stand. Listen, is that your integrity today? It was Mordecai's. Hey, listen, when everybody else is bowing, when everybody else is giving in, will you still stand for righteousness, for the things of God? It can be seen in Mordecai's devotion. Mordecai only worshiped one God. And lastly, it can be seen in Mordecai's dependence. 
In chapter 4 and verse number 1, we see Mordecai turning to God with his trouble. He repents in sackcloth and ashes. He begins to fast and pray and turn to God. His dependence is on God, not on what is happening around him. Is that you today? Can God's grace be seen in your faith? Listen, while everybody else is pulling their hair out and running and scurrying to do more and to do more and to do more, are you spending time on your knees in full and complete dependence on God? How many have ever found yourself thinking that praying was a waste of time? So well, I'd never admit that. But we admit that every time we don't spend time in prayer, don't we? Because I'm too busy to pray. I've got too much going I've got too many action points in my life to take a time aside to pray. There's too much going on. I need to be, I need to be, I need to be. How much do we think really depends on what we do and how much do we think depends on what God does? Church, we are going to be powerless if we don't pray. The power of this church will be on the amount of people, not that show up for the events and activities, but the people that show up to the prayer meeting. I'm saying, hey, we're here to pray because we're here to declare completely our dependence on God. We need God. You know, the church that thinks that prayer is a waste of time is a church that's going nowhere. We will not move forward, church, unless we are a people of prayer. May God help us to have a prayer life that honors Him. Are you talking to God? Are you just talking to yourself? How many of you have found in your prayer life that that's what you're really doing? You're just talking to yourself. You're not really casting your care on Him. So many times in prayer I find myself just trying to talk myself into and talk myself out of doing more things. When really I should just be talking to God and saying, God, I can't do anything. Without you, I can do nothing. What should we do when the grace of God seems to be obscured from our view? Man is not good, and God is good. And when we see others or ourselves doing good, may we know it is only by God's grace. When we don't see God's grace, when it's hidden from us, can I say this? Believe in it. Believe in it. You say, well, it's hard to do. Yes, it is. Faith is not easy, but the just live by faith. God's people live by faith. You say, I don't see God's grace at work in my life. Believe in it. Trust in it. Know it's at work. Know that God's grace is working out His will in your life. Stand on it. Stand on it. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith in this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. How do we glory in tribulations? We stand in God's grace. Knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. I love those words, because they're a great reminder to us of the fact that we don't stand, except we stand in God's grace. You say, how do I see God's grace when it seems to be obscured? Believe in it, stand on it, offer it to others. See, how do I offer God's grace? Well, first you must possess it. How do we possess the grace of God? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins, and God's grace will abound where your sin abounds now. You say, I'm a sinner. I know that I'm a sinner. Well, the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you're here today and you're not sure if you die, you go to heaven. Can I say this to you? You can be saved by God's grace today. It's not through our church. It's not through your works. It's not through actions that we take. I cannot save you. I'm just a man, but I am here to tell you that there was a man that came that lived a sinlessly perfect life, the Son of God, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and he died for you because he loves you. And his payment is enough for your sin. If you put faith in him today, his grace will stand where your sin stands now. And you can stand in it. You say, how can I share it with others? Church, in our relationships with other people, in your marriage today, are you waiting for your spouse to do their job before you love them? Or before you forgive them? 
You're not applying the gospel. You're not offering grace. Grace is giving what's undeserved. If you're waiting for the person you're in a relationship with to do something before you offer grace to them, then you're not preaching the gospel through your relationship. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Wives, submit yourself unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Show reverence, show respect. You say, how can I do that? Only by the grace of God. Only by the grace of God. You'll never do it in your flesh. And if you're not offering grace to your spouse today, it's because you're living in the flesh. But those that are filled with the Spirit offer grace. Church to one another. What does Paul say to us in Ephesians? And be kind one to another, tender-hearted, what? Forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. If any of you have ought against any, if anybody has a problem with somebody else, what does he say? Offer grace, just like God has offered grace to you. If you've been forgiven of much, how can you withhold forgiveness from those that owe you little? How much did you owe God? God forgave you of so much. You say, well, somebody owes me. Forgive them. You say, I can't do it. You can through God's grace. You don't know what they did. You can forgive through God's grace. By the way, the only one in bondage today because of your lack of forgiveness is you, not them. You got bitterness in your heart today towards somebody? Forgive. You can by God's grace. And then we can offer grace by sharing the gospel with people wherever we go. Say, people need to hear the good news, don't they? When's the last time? We're done this morning. But when's the last time you shared the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with somebody? We'll say, maybe they'll come to church. Maybe they won't. If they never set foot through the doors, of the, if they never come into the building, I don't want to just offer God's grace to people who come to our building. That's a very limited view. Boy, we, we need to offer grace to everybody, especially to those that are in the household of faith. But we, we need to offer grace to everybody. And the greatest way we can offer grace is by extending it through Jesus Christ and salvation offered freely through the gospel. Boy, wonderful grace of Jesus. How many you know you deserve death and hell today, but where you are today is because of God's grace. If God has used this ministry in any way to be a blessing to you, please take a moment to send us an email to info at opendoornj.org. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so online at opendoornj.org. Thanks for tuning in.